there's eight-year-olds watching porn on mobile phones. That is their sex education. The narrative is still too much focused on what women can do, as if women can prevent men from raping, assaulting, abusing. No. Liberals are, in many ways, the enemy of feminism. Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and this is Action Men, a series in which I have interesting conversations with men that actually get up off their backsides and contribute to the work that feminists are doing to prevent rape, domestic violence, and challenge pornography and the sex trade. Today, I'm speaking with Bjorn Sukta, who is a campaigner and an activist against men's violence, and in particular, the porn and sex trade. Good to talk to you. And you. Would you tell me something about yourself, who you are, what you do, and how you got to be sitting here today talking to me? Um, so yeah, my name is Björn. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Male Allies Challenging Sexism. Um, and, oh, where to start? I guess, you know, I was born in the sort of like early 80s in Germany, um, West Germany, that is in sort of like a, well, fairly working class environment, I guess. And um, yeah, we, you know, there was four of us, my brother, my dad, my mum, but I think it's sort of like quite a liberal upbringing, mainly my mum, my dad wasn't really around, you know, he was, I think the first sort of like eight, 10 years of my life, he was kind of like drinking quite a lot, just, you know, doing stuff like that. My mum was looking after us. So like that was the upbringing, it was quite liberal. My dad was quite a lot more conservative, if I'm honest, but you know, that wasn't really noticeable because he wasn't really there. So that was quite interesting. Um, and, you know, when when I turned 13, we moved to the Netherlands from Germany. So that was quite a change. So, yeah, and then I just sort of like did all my secondary education, my university there. And, you know, I mean, I'd probably say Holland is even more liberal than Germany in a lot of ways, on, on the surface that is anyway. Um, but I really noticed that when sort of like 2001 came along, with the attacks on the World Trade Center that actually Holland isn't that liberal. It's very liberal if you're sort of like, you know, you belong, you're white, you're sort of like fairly middle class. And once you scrape the surface off, it's actually pretty, pretty bad. In terms well, something of else happened in Holland in 2001, which is that brothel prostitution was legalized. Yeah. The infamous window prostitution that sex tourists will yeah. come to visit and it's everywhere which where were you in holland um i was in a place called uh, nijmegen which is on well sort of like east central i guess but you know like we had i mean that's where i went to university around that time but you know there was window prostitution there you Did could that... find it everywhere of course and people think it's just in amsterdam and it's just in the old the the center of amsterdam but we know that it's all over holland and since legalisation, it's really, really ramped up sex tourism yeah. and the numbers of pimps and prostituted women and trafficked women. That must have had some effect on you, seeing that all around you is so normalised. Yeah, and it is, it is just normal, you know, like you'll be walking around town in the middle of the night and there's a road and there's just a guy looking into windows and you're like, oh, what's going on there? And then you kind of just realise, like, okay. But then it's just also kind of normal because nobody sort of goes like, what are you doing? You know, it's it's just like a really weird... Like buying a burger. Yeah. 
it's it's just really random and you know like i mean in amsterdam there's obviously like the more famous parts of amsterdam where that is but like there'll be also other bits and you know in belgium it's the same in brussels i know there are certain areas where uh, men will go to but it just kind of becomes part of the fabric and the thing that i realized really so like thinking about is you know i think from my point of view like any sort of movement against that didn't really exist in holland like it was just all sort of you know free for all liberation kind of um well i would i would call it capitalism not liberation but it was just sort of like you know th this is fine these people choose to do that and and it's just you you can't really move that conversation around in holland it seems well now it's starting to shift there is an abolitionist movement made up of feminists and other human rights campaigners because at one stage it was only the the kind of very hard line christians who took a very moralistic line against the women um i mean i'm sure that many of them were well meaning but they weren't approaching it from a feminist point of view but one thing that really made sense to me when i was researching holland for my book on prostitution was how tourists get their information so you know when you talk to anyone in the uk or wherever They'll tell you that Holland, well, they used to, before the movement started to dismantle this brilliant legalised model, they'd say something like, oh, well, of course, in Holland, it works really well. There's no trafficking, there's no underage girls, there's no drug dealing, there's no pimping. Well, of course, that's not true. So how do all of these people get that impression? Well, I'll tell you how. Tour guides. You know, all of the tour guides around all of the hotspots, all of the tourist hotspots, not just Amsterdam, do you know who trains them? Oh, let me guess. The Prostitute Collective that is on in the red light district in Amsterdam, which is staffed by lobbyists for the sex trade. And they make money from tourists popping in and visiting them and getting a tour of the red light district. Yeah. And so they then offered to, I suppose, inform all of these tour guides, as to how the red light district works. Now, had I been informing the tour guides, I would have said there's been a massive increase in trafficking, there's been a huge increase in pimping, there's violence towards the women, sex tourism is a blight on the entire country. And I would have given them a lot of facts and figures that differ rather a lot from what the prostitutes collective give. Yeah, they, they did well you know in inverted commas to kind of like put a certain spin on it that just kind of like neglected all of the negative effect oh totally and it became a truism but let's go back to you and your youth and your university days because what i want to try and get a picture of is how and when you started being involved in feminism because you've got a background that is quite interesting and not kind of usual um yeah i guess it's not very straightforward i think you know sort of like partly growing up sort of like quite you know with a quite liberal mum i think one of the things is that she didn't really bat an eyelid about most things you know like she was quite easygoing with most stuff so like i was like 12 and i was watching certificate 15 films left right and center you know loads of violence loads of sex loads of everything she was quite happy with that and also, you know, the, the, there wasn't many conversations about things like violence or sex and how that works. 
Um, so, you know, and I had an older brother, which also helped. So, you know, it's quite easy to kind of get into quite early on to get into, you know, objectification of women. Um, um, when I moved to the Netherlands, um, they were really far advanced in terms of internet. So I think we got the internet when I was 15 or 16. And, you know, the internet being the internet, the first stuff that was on there was just awful. I mean, there was quite, you know, useful things, information and stuff, but there was also a lot of porn on there. And, you know, give a 15, 16 year old and a like 19 year old access to the internet and don't supervise it, what they're gonna find. I think my mum just also didn't know. She was just sort of like, oh, this is the internet, there's information on there kind of thing, you know? Well, liberals are in many ways the enemy of feminism because they assume a level playing field and they also tend to assume that pornography is merely a kind of part of, you know, leisure activities. It's acceptable. Yeah without looking at the power differentiations and how sex means different things to women and, and to men who were kind of groomed by the porn industry. So what changed? Um, so I met my partner when I was about 26 and she was a feminist. So um, at, at one point she found out that I was watching porn and she's like, oh, that's not. I hope she whooped your ass. If she did. Deservedly so. Um, and at the end of the day, it's like, well, either sort it out or it's bye. Um, and you loved her. And I said, okay, that's it. No more. So I got a few books. There was one that I got, which was um, Confronting Your Spouse's Pornography Problem that I read. And I got Bob Jensen's book, Getting Off. And um, I started reading all around it. We talked to Bob for this yeah. series. And he's brilliant. You know, I, I love how he, he makes it really personal. And, you know, I can't I can't read that book even nowadays without sort of like tearing up because it's just so personal and it's just so real. And, and I re recognize a lot of it. And I think, you know, sort of like seeing it from that perspective for the first time, I was just like, oh, OK. Hmm. You know, and it's just sort of like somebody just sort of like turned the mirror that way. And it's like... I mean, I actually remember um, one time having to be told, I was very young, I was still in my teens at that stage when I got involved in feminism. I had to be reminded that there were real women in the pornography. I don't mean because I hadn't noticed that there were actual photographs yeah. of real women, but I think I'd said something like, yes, and this is terrible and it's, almost like a role play of women being raped. And, and somebody said, well, those women are raped. They, they are real women. Yeah. And I had not made that connection because it was probably too painful to make that connection because we knew we were against pornography because it sent a message to men that women were vessels and orifices and the like. But the most painful thing that I learned was actually that this is not these are not images. I mean they are. Yeah. But they're a crime scene. And more so now, of course, because pornography has become so much more sadistic. Here's another thing. What about the stereotypes about anti sexist men, pro feminist men? What about the fact that you are often derided? I suppose there are two sides to this. One is that you're not real men or you wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And obviously they're not going to be feminists saying that to you. 
But the other side is my people saying, oh, you anti-sexist men. I don't know, just... I don't do it, but mistrusting you or thinking that you all knit your own sandals <laughs> uh, or you're all vegan kind of, you know, green activists. I happen to be vegan, but there we go. Well, um. <laughs> get out of this studio. That is a disgrace. No, no, but seriously, I mean, what about the stereotypes? And what about the fact that obviously there is some truth in stereotypes? But there is some truth in stereotypes. And I think both of the ones that you mentioned probably play into the same thing, just from two different sides. And, you know, like you said, the um, famous, you know, oh, you're a feminist. Oh, do you just want to get laid then? Which we do you get- know, I'd forgotten about that one. It was. It was. That was very prevalent when... Back in the 80s and 90s, it was never trust an anti-sexist man because he's just doing it to find a nice feminist girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I've gotten that quite a few times. I mean, there was even a tweet that went out like a couple of months ago with basically that sentiment like the day after our conference. And I was like, OK. I'm sure there's easier ways to get laid than hanging around with feminists. But it's, it just kind of goes to show that what you said, like, oh, you, you're not a real man. then You know, that kind of aspect right. of it and I think that's maybe which is very sexist it's deeply demeaning to women because if you're going to bother yourself to give a damn about us what does it say about the way they see us but the interesting thing with that is I think that argument comes more from men mm-hmm. because they kind of sort of I don't know I don't, I don't know what it is but it's it kind of ties into the whole thing of like you know if you're a man you shouldn't like really have any feelings or like you know be soft or care about other people so like you know, you either must be like gay or you're just doing it to have sex. Like so one, of, one of those. So two. these people can't actually imagine that you would have a vested interest in stopping men's violence, yeah. on having better relationships with women, in supporting women in the biggest issue facing us, all of us. No, that just doesn't make sense somehow. No. You know, and it's... And I, I just never really know what to say, you know, just sort of like, okay. like It, it, it just sort of, to me, seems like really 12-year-old thinking, you know, like you can't, yeah. where there's like not really any kind of common sense to what you're no, saying and to you me. No, can't, you can't really answer on that level. But then the other side of this is, I suppose, that feminists obviously want to cut you down to size. We want to stop you feeling like you're entitled to do certain things. We want to remove some of the power and privilege that you were afforded at birth. And often we're really horrible about you. I mean, I I think feminism is the most optimistic movement on the planet because we don't think you are born bad. We don't think you are born programmed to hurt or abuse or demean women. But Seriously, we are pretty hardcore nasty. And I don't mean the the women who go around wanting to placate men all the time, like, oh, thank you for coming to the conference. And isn't it lovely to have a man speak out? I mean, proper feminists like me um, are tough on, on men. D- does that ever feel... Surely, I mean, you're a human being. Do you ever think, oh, God, give it a rest, put a sock in it? Um, I don't think like give it a rest. I think the thing that pops into my mind. Well, I want to go back actually to the other thing that you said. So like, I think we, the, the thing that I'm very aware of also is that there have been a number of pro-feminist men who have then sort of been found to, you know, 
um, abuse women. And I'm very yeah. aware of the fact that a lot of women in feminism have been abused in one way or another, or there will no women who've been abused. So the... It's the wolf in sheep's clothing thing. Yeah, and at the end of the day, if I understand, I think it's a realistic um, concern. Who are these guys? Like, what are they doing? I think it's a realistic concern, and it's, I think it's a fair, fair concern. So, like, you know, if... I mean, we had some women come to our conference this year, so like, I'm always happy for women to come check us out. It does feel a little, little bit, you know, ooh. Yeah, it would am, make am me. Am I going to get it right? Yeah, it would make know? me feel uncomfortable. I mean, I suppose the only way that I, the, the only analogy I have is the first time I went to South Africa to do some research there, and obviously it was well post-apartheid. This was about five, six years ago, and when I realised how I was being treated, just because I was white. It felt very, very uncomfortable because on the one hand, it was so nice. And on the other hand, it was, oh, I don't like this. It's a tricky one, isn't it? It is. And there, there's like multiple things where it's sort of like, well, and, and this is also the, the, the tricky thing with doing something like this, which probably stops quite a lot of men because you will hear men say sort of like, oh, but, you know, we'll just wait for the feminists to tell us what to do. <laughs> um, and I think part that of That would be clean our houses, actually. Walk our dogs. Yeah, do the dishes. <laughs> you know, there's that thing where it, it it feels quite alien as a man talking about, you know, pro-feminist activism organising because it's kind of like... But, and then you also kind of feel like, oh, well, I don't really know about this apart from, from my own point of view, so I don't know from it from a women's point of view, but I can listen to women and then kind of like give it my spin. Um, so that just kind of like feels a little bit awkward sometimes. And also I'm... I'm good at organising. I'm not necessarily the best at speaking, but I think, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to those things, it's it's good to kind of like push yourself and to learn. And the thing that I've noticed is actually, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the feminists I talk to are all really supportive. They will tell you if you got it wrong, which is great because again, ninety nine point nine percent of the time it's fair. And it, I think it's it's one of the things that I really appreciate because I think with, you know, you always wind up slightly generalizing, but I think one of the problems with male culture is, is that we let each other off too much. So it's kind of like, oh, I won't say anything because he's my mate or like, I won't know. So it's kind of like, it's quite a like, it's a bit like a big fraternity in a way, you know. So like some sort of male protection racket, unconscious though. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. So like I often find like a push comes to shove, like I quite often feel like a guy won't tell me like straight up like what? Whereas like with feminists, the, the experience that I've made is when I say something wrong, they will tell me and yes, that is uncomfortable. But if, if I'm okay with that, if I don't feel like I'm being personally attacked and I just kind of think like, oh, right, here's a learning opportunity. Here's somebody who's giving me like the blank truth from their point of view. And actually, this is about something that affects her more than me. And maybe that carries quite a lot more weight because like I don't live this. I'm I'm just sort of like looking at it from the outside. Then it's like, oh, OK, but I hadn't considered that. And then if I can you know, if I can sort of like put the defense mechanism to the side and just be like, okay, this is somebody who's experiencing this firsthand rather than just looking at it from the outside. 
one thing that you do know a lot about is the way that boys are socialised and how easy it is to get to that stage where you have dehumanised girls and women and where that makes it that bit easier to um, sexually assault, to physically attack, or just to put down and coercively control. And what we need men to do is to tell other men, that's unacceptable, there will be consequences, do not do this. I mean, somebody said to me, how are you ever going to end up? How are you ever going to end rape? And I said, well, it's easy. Men just have to stop rape. They just have to stop doing it and stop other men from doing it. But of course I was being glib. Of course it's not easy. But what do you think needs to happen for us to get to a stage where there are more men than there currently are? Because you are a very small group we are. that are actually speaking out against male violence. I mean... I think there needs to be quite a few things. I think the narrative is still too much focused on what women can do. You know, as if, like, women can prevent men from raping, assaulting, abusing. No. You know, we need to stop the people doing it. You know, it's it just doesn't work. And, you know, because they've been trying that for decades and it just doesn't shift. If anything, it gets worse. So... What's the point? And I think as a society, because I think it is up to all of us, you know, especially all of us men, it's not enough to sort of say like, oh, you know, like, oh, I haven't got kids or like whatever, this doesn't concern me or whatever it might be. But I think as men, we all need to contribute to that. And I think, you know, especially partly also because we make the majority of the decisions, like not personally, but, you know, the ones in power, are mainly men. So I think, you know, whether it comes to, you know, sex education in schools needs to be much more up to date, you know, and, and people just need to get comfortable talking to kids about it because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, there's eight-year-olds watching porn on mobile phones. That is their sex education. That is their sex education. And like, when somebody says like, can you talk to your 13-year-old about sex? That's like, mm, well, I'm not sure about this. It's but, hard, isn't yeah. it? When you think about the sexualized culture in which we live, the pornified culture in which we live, and the constant references to female body parts and to demeaning and degrading sex acts done to girls and women. And you can't actually sit a classroom full of kids down and say, okay, here's what consensual sex is. This is about sexual pleasure. This is about the right to say no. This is how a baby is made. It's very, I'm sure that we can do that if we can also normalise the sexual harassment of girls through pornography and constant dick pics and the like. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's obviously parts of that where also the government and the law can do much more. That's very clear. You know, I mean, as I said, I started watching online porn when I was probably 16. Like, how is it what are we, like, almost 30 years later? How are, like, eight-year-olds now watching porn? If anything, right. they should have sorted it by now. But, you know, the, the, weirdly enough, I feel like the the story that I've heard for this last 15 years is like, oh, this is the first generation of boys who've, who've grown up on porn. I'm like, no. It's not true. That was 25 years ago. Like, get a grip. Like, check reality. Because it's literally not true you know like yeah maybe now they're seeing it at eight but you know kids growing up in like the 2000s they would have started seeing it from when they're like 14 
And it's, you know, three, four years is more than plenty to, you know, twist your brain. So, so what is the future of the pro-feminist men's movement or the anti-sexist men's movement, whatever you want to call it? How can you swell your ranks, get more involved? Do you have any plans for the future, for more global connections? Because I know you have some. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. I, I really want to be building connections, not just in the UK, but also beyond that. So hopefully um, we'll get a group of men together to write about their experiences of porn and like why they stopped watching it. So we're trying to, hoping to do something with that because that's really important because I think just talking about that might actually get some people to think about it at the same time i think also just finding men and you know like events are always useful for that because if you if you meet somebody in real life it's a different thing than if you just chat to them online so you know we're gonna try and do more events where we can get men together talk about it and then just sort of like slowly grow and it's it's about making those connections and having people to fall back on and also having other men to talk about you know things that you maybe in your normal life can't talk to people about and also bringing bringing fresh ideas and one of the really great things because our last conference was in Glasgow is I saw a video online um, I don't know six months beforehand there's this guy called Rudy who's being interviewed and I said oh well, he looks good so I just sent a message on Twitter and then we met up and there was a whole group of gay men from Scotland who were sort of organizing um, particularly around you know gender identity and then I said, like, oh, well, we've got a group of, like, straight guys down here, you know, like, <laughs> and then sort of, like, having conversations about, you know, what we're in it for. And then, you know, making those connections and then just talking to each other and just learning things and exchanging. I think that's that's one of the things that will keep it moving forward. The one slight concern I do have with the way things are now is that I feel like you kind of talked a little bit about the different camps of feminism I think one encouraging thing is, in my point of view, there's more men interested in radical feminism that I've met even just the last two years than there have been before, which is mainly down to, um, you know, infringements of freedom of speech, not being able to talk about biological sex, all that kind of stuff, because I think that's to some degree quite a lot closer to the bone for men it kind of seems like it's got more of a direct impact. Whereas some of the men who come more from a violence against women standpoint have been around a little bit longer. Um, you know, I don't like the phrase, but they're not necessarily gender critical, Perfect. you know. Um, so there's a little bit of a split there, which is slightly disconcerting so Ooh, the movement must be going from strength to strength if you've already got factions but you know what i mean where to be big, big enough to have the split that's good <laughs> but you know what i mean so there's there, there will be things where um a, cer a certain you know j just like within feminism there will be a certain group of men who will sort of think like oh yeah violence against women is bad but I've got a fairly strong point on like all the gender identity stuff. So like if you're doing this, then it's a no. So and 
the thing that I do love as well is that you do get men and you know we had we had at the conference and people will have different ideas about this you know like people will have a different stance on abortion you know they might not be anti-abortion but they might think that you can't abort a child after eight weeks somebody else might think 12 somebody else might think 16 somebody else might think you should do it all the time you know and some of these things are just there you can't just be like well i'm only going to talk to you if you think exactly the same as me yeah i'd just send him off for a vasectomy any bloke that thinks that abortion should be restricted came down the clinic yeah well i actually used, mean it no i know you do it <laughs> Well, some anti-sexist men have done that. They've taken themselves to the clinic. Yes. And sh- but you know, I should run a clinic, actually. No, no, I don't want to do that. Well, a free vasectomy for anti-sexist men. <laughs> Just give you a Feminist vasectomies. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. And I guess the problem being is if, you know, if we all go down the no debate route, like nothing will change. And yeah. I disagree with you on that. Fine. But if we agree on this, then maybe we can do something about that and then we can just let that be a difference. Do you know what I mean? I do. And otherwise, I'll just be chopping my limbs off right, left, right and centre and just have nothing to do at the end of it. Same here. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. It's, it's been fun and informative and obviously we'll carry on speaking and I'll see you at the conference tomorrow. You will. See you there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.